The history of personal computing. History, 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 history. History of Personal Computing Podcast. Today's focus computer, the Grundy New Brain, with your hosts, Todd George and Jeff Salzman. So, Jeff, did we well, ever decide? I, it's great to be back, actually. I, I agree. Um, I feel like you were just, you know, sitting in a basement for years and years and years, like some of the stuff that uh, you collect, and then, <laughs> you know, back out again, ready to show how many capacitors you have that went bad. I was going to say, I'm just about to pop a capacitor, I think. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so are, is that actually what we're calling this? I mean, I know the history of personal computing has had a bit of a history, per se. You know, I, I put some thought into that. 2.0 sounds a bit cliche. We could do the prequel. That would make the timeline really confusing. The prequel? Oh, I mean, like, like Star Trek Discovery or something. Does that mean we can get money selling this on CBS All Access? Maybe. Maybe. There's an idea. I don't know if anybody's actually going to listen, though. No, no, what they'll do is they'll... They'll pay for one month and binge listen to it. And then, you know, then they'll go back and cancel their subscription. Man, binge listening, that I, I kind of feel bad for them. <laughs> uh, well. So I don't know. I guess we were thinking like the new history of personal computing or one of my favorites. And I know this is, you, you use the word cliche, but the history of personal computing reboot. <laughs> and, you know, and that best describes it because um, we're bringing the show back. Uh, this time with a different cast of characters. Yeah. So um, so I looked back. I thought it was way more recently that I had done a history of personal computing. We did the IBM PC 5150, I think it was, together. Yes. Episode 53, and I know you guys renumbered them a couple times, but it, it was way farther back than I thought. Remember on the eBay shows when it was just an eBay thing. Mm -hmm. So we can renumber these too. Yeah, I think I think I'm personally thinking this starts at show one again. Yeah. Just to keep it really confusing. Just, yeah. <laughs> so now, now there's, what, three or four different show ones on, on, the, on the feed? But no, I mean, basically, so what Jeff and I were thinking is that this becomes a new version of the History of Personal PC, Personal Computing Podcast, and that we pick a focus computer. Now, that focus computer is something that maybe isn't quite, um, let's use the term like unsung hero, right? Something that you might not have heard about that isn't hotly collected. So we're not going to be talking, you know, Commodores or anything like that on here, unless there's, you know, a rare Commodore that we want to talk about. But I think it, I think we stick to things that were actually released and actually manufactured. So no, no, you know, like rarities or uh, pre-production models or anything like that. So something that was actually out there, but maybe a lot of people don't know about. And then our thought was that Jeff and I both go on like an internet research mission, right? We just kind of go out there. What interests us? What are we reading about? What YouTube are we watching? And then bring those details back, kind of discuss them in an open forum, talk about the things that interested us about the computer. Sound yeah, good? Kind of like a flea market find. Sort of, yeah. I, I, You know, to me, this is like a way to dig into a computer that I wouldn't normally have spent any time thinking about, right? Yeah. And... It's not something I'm ever going to collect, you know, 
it, you know, they're, they're not a machine that I'm, you know, particularly interested in from that perspective. Unless you're lucky enough to find it at a garage sale and please let us know if you do. Yeah, exactly. Right. But I say, you know, we focus on these rare computers. We isolate one per podcast episode. We have some discussions around it. Maybe it becomes something fun to listen to. I don't know. Yeah, the discussions may not be focused or a particular structure. It'll be based on what we find. You know, we might find some pretty interesting information that may not be able to be categorized. It's just something we found out, and we'll talk about our opinion on it and what it means to us or what we think it meant back then. Yeah, actually, in the in the context of when the computer was, was in the market, too. Um, you know, I think that we... Um, also want to indicate up front that while Wikipedia might be a source that we use for some of the information, this isn't going to be the type of thing. I really want to try to not just read information that we found online, unless it's like a direct quote from something, obviously. That's how I used to do all my uh, reports and stuff for college. <laughs> Uh, my my wife was a college professor for quite some time, and she was always like, Wikipedia is not a primary source. Wikipedia is not a primary source. But you know what? This isn't college, so we can do what we want. Yeah. But as long as there's some good references on the Wikipedia page, we can explore that. This is true. Um, and I also want to point out up front that we're not going to purport to be experts about any of these machines that we talk about. We're just exploring it, having fun, talking about what we thought was cool about it in the context of history. And I guess we're open for suggestions on computers that people think are like the unsung heroes, right? Oh, absolutely. As well. All right. Cool. Yeah, we're just collectors, you know, delving into this stuff. Yeah. I don't know how we suggest people get a hold of us, but for me, I'm uh, at 64. At, yeah, I can, can't even say it. I'm at C64Todd on Twitter. Is probably a really decent way to get a hold of me. I think you're at Vintage Volts, right? Correct. Okay. Plus, I think the email still works for historyofpersonalcomputing.com. Oh, nice. Okay. Admin at historyofpersonalcomputing.com. I still host it, so. Cool. And that's where you will find this podcast as well? Eventually. Eventually. Once it gets edited and once uh, things happen. We have to come up with a good intro music. That's that's the real trick here. Yeah. I, That'll sell us. I have some things, you know, bubbling in that perspective. I'm assuming that people listening to this have probably already heard that at this point, at least I hope. Yep. Um, yeah, David Grealish went off to bigger and better things, and, you know, we all hope he, uh, well, actually, he went off to something with the, what, the Appalisa, and that's working out well for him. So, you know, we might uh, change the title sequence because he's not going to be a regular on this version, even though we might ask to invite him sometime. I thought you uh, took his keys. Just to the executive washroom. Oh, okay. Got it. So anyway, one of the first uh, computers that Jeff indicated, and it was one I wasn't familiar with, he said, let's talk about the Grundy New Brain. And I was like, the who what? <laughs> so I started, I started looking into it, and uh, I believe Jeff has done the same. So here we are going to go through and talk about the Grundy New Brain. It's a very interesting computer. It, it's fascinating. Um, I think to kick things off in the discussion, one of the first things I want to talk through is the... Um, there was a, a magazine called Personal Computing World or Personal Computer World, um, and the senior editor, Dick Pountain, had uh, said when the new brain was announced to the world in 1980, the design concept was significant, significantly in advance of anything that had, that had been seen in the field of handheld computing. So that tells you a lot of things right away. We know that 1980, we know that this is a handheld computer or something really small and compact. So this uh, was actually one of... The projects of Sir, Sir 
Clive Sinclair as well. Um, so the initial project was started sometime around 1978 by Sinclair Radionics. So that's the kind of the foundation of, uh, of what we're talking about today. And for those of us who know about Sinclair, Clive Sinclair, he likes to make things fit or cost under a hundred bucks. Yes. And that was the attempt on this one. Uh, foreshadowing. I like it. So one of the things that we want to talk about as well with each of the computers that we're focusing on are some specifications, hardware, expansion options, things like that. Now, this isn't going to be where we just like read through specs because that's something that is kind of boring to, to think about. But I think it's important to know what processors and you know what speed these machines ran at so that you can kind of frame them in the proper context of history. So this was a ZDA running at four megahertz. They actually had released two different models. Um, Jeff, I think you made might have dug into the models uh, around the battery. I still was really kind of questioning that myself. Yeah, I think they all had batteries, uh, but one of them had a built-in display. The the two models are the A and the AD. Uh, the D indicating a built-in display, and it's it was just like what a sixteen-character display, little yeah. fluorescent display, little green, you know, that teal color. Really nice too. The original design was to be portable, and in this case, because it's a Z80, to be a portable CPM machine, uh, which was actually quite nice to have back then for those who could acquire this. Yeah, seriously, because you figured the other stuff that was out was like K-Pros and the briefcase-style machines. That was as close as you were going to get to portable. And this one would hook up to your television, too, to give you a monochrome output. Wow. Which was also convenient. But again, with batteries, it wasn't portable because... It did not run on CMOS architecture, so the battery lasted about 30 minutes. Yeah, they apparently had a future version they planned that was going to be CMOS, um, but as you'll hopefully find out during the course of the podcast, things didn't go quite the way they had planned. No, but it's still an interesting machine. Um, Let's see, compared to any other machine that's out there, um, I guess this can closely be resembled to a Model 100 in the fact that it was a portable computing device with a fairly decent keyboard on it. But it was no Model 100. It, a reporter is not going to use this thing because of the short battery life and because it doesn't do touch typing. But it does CPM. Hooked right up to a monitor or your television with only composite input. But like other computers, it had audio cassette storage, had um, ability to, for expansion. There was actually an expansion chassis available for it. So you could use floppy disks. So it's kind of like, uh, remember those old tiny ThinkPads you put in docking stations and you can take your computing power with you? Yeah. I had a Toshiba Libretto, actually. I just recently started kind of collecting those again. Those, uh, they, they were like the size of a VHS tape, if anybody remembers what those are. And uh, you had a full computer, but then you could dock it and have like a full desktop machine. And this kind of reminds me of that. And I love the reference to the TRS-80 Model 100 or maybe the Model 102 because I couldn't stop thinking about those machines when I was researching this, uh, the Grundy New Brain. So think of those pocket sharp and Casio computers that were sold in the early 80s, but with, how, how can I say, less integrated circuitry in it. Right. Maybe more usability as well. Yeah. The, uh, the sharp and... Casio ones, they didn't um, they didn't hook up to a larger screen, but they did have things like 16 character displays. Right. And you, but you programmed those in basic. This one CPM for storage, it had uh, what was it 64k of RAM in that compact case. Yeah. Yeah. Three 8k ROMs. So it packed a lot of mapping, you know, drive mapping or um, memory mapping in there. 
Yeah, and they had a, a bunch of different things planned as far as expansion uh, capabilities as well. The uh, the one thing I thought was really impressive before we get too far away from talking about the inbuilt VFD display option and the uh, output to monochrome composite uh, displays, they actually indicated this could do up to 80 column as well. So that was something that I think differentiated it pretty significantly from other machines that were out at the time as well. So if you if you put it in the context of like, you know, the Commodore VIC-20 or some of the other machines around the same time, you're you're not getting 80 columns. Even the TRS-80 Model 1 only had 64 columns at the time. That's so true. this this having 80 columns and having graphics modes up to 640 by 256 was pretty advanced for the time. And then the fact that it was so expandable and they had so many different things planned for expansion. Uh, they had a, a, a variety of different expansion modules that were going to include printers, uh, printer ports, serial ports, uh, a variety of other 8-bit computer, I'm sorry, 8-bit equipment control ports. Uh, they were talking about cartridge uh, capabilities for software, so ROM packs, if you will. But you still have that calculator-style keyboard, so. Yeah. Um, I did read uh, one of the one of the things that we'll reference toward the end of the episode. Um, one of the stories I was reading about it did say that the keys were of full travel, style and the spacing was that of a normal keyboard however they were these small little chiclet keys that uh you know apparently they caught a lot of flack about this during some of the different design phase and then once they hit the market with it but from what i read it's it's actually not that terrible to type on um and then the other big benefit was that it's a portable machine they actually apparently got some pretty good uh, inroads to like pharmacies and stuff that were using these machines and uh the keyboard was also very easy to clean compared to you know, the standard mechanicals of the time. Yeah, when I picture full travel keys, I picture those on a push-button telephone of the era. Mm-hmm. It's the tall, they pushed down, they had decent spacing to them. But the keycaps, I don't think, were as as bowed as, you know, was it concave as a telephone one? Right. But that's the best analogy I can think of for a full travel keyboard that was built well. Yeah, it was interesting. There's a couple of different YouTube videos that I watched uh, because, you know, again, not having any direct familiarity with the machine. And in those videos, I don't think anyone ever showed the keyboard being used. You can hear it in one of the in one of the videos. They they type on it and it definitely sounds a little more than just a calculator keyboard. Um but it's definitely not, you know, not quite a, a full uh keyboard as well. And it's funny you referenced the Model 100 being really popular with, with reporters. One of the things that was, uh, you know, huge about the Model 100 was the fact that it had a great keyboard. It was a full stroke, full size, really nice keyboard. And then, you know, had that battery life that you mentioned, serial, com- you know, communication capabilities and so on. So that was one thing that apparently this took a little bit of a beating about. Well, they tried to make a miracle. They tried to make it really so it can fit under $100. Yeah. They, I guess they just tried to add as much as they could to make it very useful without having runaway costs. Yeah, apparently, uh, from what I read, the, the hardware design is really nice inside. Uh, apparently, it's a, like a three-board sandwich and has uh, some really well-engineered heat sinking capabilities and, and, and such uh, that apparently gave it um, a lot of uh, a lot of the recent teardowns I saw were, were very positive about uh, how well-built it was. Apparently, some of those ribbon cables are a little problematic now, uh, you know, that they're going on 30-plus years old. Yeah, they were stuck in position more than they were bent, but yeah, the plastics on those could get brittle. And yeah, the fact that it had heat sinks and stuff was nice because the back three boards in in that size case, how tall was it again? I forget. I didn't look that up. Let me check real quick. About uh, 
one and a half to two inches thick. Yeah, it was extremely small. So heat sinks were absolutely important. But I don't think it had any ventilation. It may have um, kind of just went to the surface of the case to, to vent out. You know, it's funny. I don't see dimensions listed here on at least one of the websites I had in my bookmarks. No, maybe it doesn't exist after all. It's not a real device. I, I would guess, just based on what I'm seeing, it, it's probably in the neighborhood of maybe an inch and a half thick, something like that, just based on the size of the ports and everything. Yeah, it's usable. I would say it would fit just fine on that little tray table in an airplane. Yeah, there you go. But the battery only lasts as far as takeoff. Yeah, right. Which is good, because they don't want you running that stuff. Well, no, you have to power it off during takeoff, right? One of the other things we thought about talking about through this was software. And uh, software apparently was a bit challenging for this. Um, it packed with, like, out of the box, had BASIC and ROM. Uh, and apparently, you know, CPM was definitely on the short list of things they, they uh, released for it. Uh, and apparently a lot of the common CPM ports that were out there supported it directly uh, because of the screen mappings and things like that that need to be changed to be hardware specific. But I guess third-party support was a bit of a challenge. It depends on uh, how close they were holding it to their chest. True. Or they find somebody to buy into it because, you know, I didn't see it in the United States. I didn't – it was – a lot of computers like this were not available to us. Well, we, we got a lot of the – I guess because it wasn't made in Japan and sent to us. Right. Yeah, and this one seemed to be very uh, UK-centric. Uh, it's interesting now, we'll, we'll talk a little bit later about some of the eBay stuff, but a lot of the eBay references I found were, were definitely eBay International. They, they, weren't, uh, they, they weren't very heavily US-centric at all. It would still be nice to find one in some neighbor's garage sale. Exactly. <laughs> so I did see that there was a third-party company. I didn't get a name of the company, unfortunately, but they, they did release a SCSI disk uh, for it. Uh, they had some networking support through that SCSI module. Um, and that was designed to have an office full of new brains that you could collaborate on, you know, word processing spreadsheets, that sort of thing. Uh, so definitely, you know, some thought process behind entrance into, you know, your, your business community. Uh, but there's a definite chicken and egg issue there with that sort of thing. You, you got to get the machines out there before people will program software for it. You've got to get software before people will buy the machines. So there's definitely a little bit of an issue there at, at play. Um, I think CPM being available was, you know, definitely a huge benefit because you immediately unlock a lot more software, a lot more software capabilities, I guess, at that point. Yeah, plenty of com files will certainly keep you busy on a um, CPM system. You know, I, I think about this, you know, I'm, I'm trying to picture how it would be used in a networked environment or even with SCSI capabilities where there's um, hardware sharing of information. The nearest I can related to is remember when was it 3com came out with the the palm pilot yeah one of my favorite computing platforms of all time it's a small powerful computing device that people weren't sure what they're going to do with it right so you put it out there and let the market drive what happens and you try to price it right but then again they didn't try to make it run cpm because nobody else was running cpm at the time and cpm was kind of going on the wayside when the, uh, the new brain came out, but it's still a valid effort to make that available for it. That just gives an instant purpose for anybody who wants portable CPM. And I always felt like there was a certain business clout to CPM. And, you know, it seemed like one of those things that like the Im immediately the fact that you, you know, offered CPM meant, hey, you know what? We're not joking around. This is not your kid's computer. This is actually something that can do real business tasks. Now, I don't know if I'd want to sit and type at that keyboard all day, all day long, does it run DBase2? That was the question. <laughs> right. 
We didn't find anybody running DBase two on on theirs. I, you know, I didn't look on on my side, but that's an interesting. Well, theoretically, you could copy. Well, probably have to do it through serial transfer. You know, copy DBase from a K Pro to this device, and it should be able to run because of the nature of CPM. Hmm. Yeah, I would think so. Uh, but it'd be nice to see if somebody can show that to us. That would be awesome to see, especially hooked up to a composite input on the television. Yeah, a couple of the pictures I saw were of this on a monochrome display, and the output looked extremely clean from, from what I could tell. Now, was that PAL or NTSC? I'm imagining this is probably PAL all the way around. Yeah, considering it's you know, where it was uh, made. Yeah, exactly. Well, something led to what it is and what it became. What about the history of this thing? So we've got a couple of things that I thought became interesting about this, uh, especially, again, painted in the the landscape of the competing machines at the time and all of the things that were going on in the computing industry. One of the things that I thought was just fascinating was how many times this changed hands. Um, And it was actually kind of complicated and difficult to really get through. I'm going to skim the surface really shallow kind of deep it, this is nowhere near a deep dive into the history the, the history is fascinating of this machine but what was crazy is the company had a, a a ridiculous progression and again as we mentioned it started out as part of Clive Sinclair's uh, Sinclair Radionics and then he found out that it couldn't be manufactured for less than 100 pounds so that immediately he lost interest he wanted something that was 100 pounds which eventually became the Sinclair ZX uh Spectrum ZX80 uh d- devices and we know how that went. Yeah. But he was so interested in manufacturing something for under 100 pounds and knew that very early on that the new brain couldn't be manufactured that cheaply. So what happened was, and it was interesting, too, that there was uh, some government involvement here. So the U- the UK government had uh, something called the National Enterprise Board, which changed names later on, but that's kind of not important here. Uh, and it seems to me, from what I was reading, that Clive Sinclair was almost his one of his companies, Sinclair Radionics specifically, was very close to going out of business at one point, and the National Enterprise Board kind of stepped in and and helped him out a little bit, which kind of had them involved in this project. So they uh, basically moved it to uh, Newberry Laboratories was the second uh, destination that was working on the new brain itself. Secret location. Yeah. Right. We can rebuild it. We have the technology. So that show that show was about the right timeline too. Anyway, yeah, it, yeah, it was. So the British government and BBC being interested in the new brain uh, to be what eventually became the BBC Micro. So the new brain came before BBC Micro. Yeah, actually, it was funny because the BBC um, was very interested in creating a computer for the, for the masses, right? They wanted to uh, kind of have the government funding. Uh, a specific machine and have something that, you know, was very easy to acquire for the home market, for the education market. And that was all kind of driven by, I think it was like a six part series that they had released on TV about personal computing and microcomputing that had blown up. It was crazy popular and they knew that they had to get out in front of this. So they started specking computers out. And one of the early ones that they specced specifically was the new brain. So the new brain itself, they basically designed a specification that was to become what eventually would be the BBC micro. So this thing could have been huge. You think about what eventually became the BBC micro, one of the best selling computers in the UK. Absolutely. And this could have been that, but there were a a couple of challenges uh, around being able to deliver it on time. 
So what I read was that they were unable to complete the project within the defined guidelines. Newberry Laboratories, this is, was unable, unable, unable to make that happen. And then the New Brain project actually got sold to a company called Grundy Business Systems. That's where it became the Grundy New Brain. Prior to that, it was designed and destined to be the BBC's government kind of funded computer for the UK. But how many people, you know, for the entire UK, it pretty much like the BBC Micro became a consumer computer. How many consumers really needed something as portable and tiny as the New Brain? That probably was a, a nail in its coffin, too. Yeah, that's, that's actually an interesting, interesting point. But they sold them. Yeah, they did. Um, from what I... As Grundy Business Systems, right? Correct. Yeah, from what I read, uh, Grundy Business Systems, and what I'm assuming is also a company called Tradecom, which we'll talk about in just a second, um, but they sold about 50,000 units and far less of the accessories and expansion hardware uh, because there was um, an issue with the termination of the project. So basically what happened from what I could find is that the banks had pulled the plug on this project in the summer of 1983. And a company called Tradecom purchased the rights to all of the hardware, purchased the existing stock of the different hardware uh, components, and they essentially purchased the Gordy Business Systems name in order to fulfill some different contracts they had for things like schools and uh, I think there were some pharmacy contracts, things like that. Um, and they had actually, Sinclair and um, Newbury had not really made much progress in getting the... Uh, accessories and, and hardware ready uh, for the expansion of this unit. So Tradecom also took up making the expansion accessories available. Um, the one thing that was interesting was even though they completed a lot of the expansion projects, they did not go forward with any further development of the unit. They just basically sold off existing stock. And that's why there's only 50,000 sold, which is kind of a shame. Yeah. They, they used it to sell their products. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it kind of reminds me of what, what uh, Sun Remarketing did with a lot of the Apple products. So Sun Remarketing being the company that bought the assets for the Apple Lisa uh, when when um, when Apple decided they were going to stop selling it. Uh, Sun Remarketing was also known for quite a few other uh, kind of buyouts and selling of Apple hardware over the years. I wasn't aware of Sun Marketing doing that. I, I didn't pay too much to Apple stuff myself until you know, about 15 years ago. Uh, but yeah, it's... Again, I wish I had one of these because it would be fun to play with. And I guess I have to go to the UK Museum of Computing to do so. Yeah. Do they? Yeah. They probably have one there. I would hope so. I actually did a tour uh, a couple of years ago of um, the uh, TNMOC, which is the National Museum of Computing over there in, in the UK. And I don't remember seeing one of these. I'm going to have to. It's interesting. I didn't even think about that till now. I'm, I'm going to have to dig through my pictures and see if I did find one. Um while I was over there. I don't remember seeing it, though. But people still are using it. Yeah. And there's our community for that, like HEC Retro Users Group, formerly the Dutch New Brain Users Group, until, I guess, the number of New Brain owners dwindled. <laughs> and now HTC stands for Hobby Computer Club, which, you know, you can't fault them for that. No. Expand the, uh, expand the reach. Make your, make your group bigger and better. And we did uh, call some of our information from that. Yes. From that website. And we will put that on the podcast page. Me, I like using the real thing if possible. When I can't do that, I hope to find an emulator. And tell us about the New Brain emulator. What did you discover about it? So I, I found an excellent website, uh, newbrainemu.eu. Um, that talked a lot about this, not only from the hardware and software perspective, they have a lot of software archives, but they also have a very active community and forum on that website. 
but it's all kind of centered around a new brain emulator that's out there and uh didn't actually download the emulator and try it but uh it definitely looks like it's uh, very mature and and seems like a, a, a an excellent product from what i saw yeah there's some universal cpm emulators out there i forget what it was called but it can emulate the the k pro the osborne some of the homebrew stuff but this one is actually a new brain emulator specific to this hardware okay yeah, I'll have to play with it sometime. Yeah, I didn't. I bet a bit of cool uh, playing on my Surface Pro here. Uh, I'll use it in the meeting to take notes in, uh, you know, what, what was the big heart, uh, word processor back then on CPM? Oh, WordStar? WordStar, that's right. Nice. So I have that on my cable, but hey, yeah, I'll just do that in my next meeting. It'd probably be great for the distraction-free stuff that everybody talks about, right? You know, not having anything else on the screen, just a blank surface to uh, to type on. Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, sometimes I'll do Commodore 64 stuff on there. I, I think the Surface, I have a, a Surface Pro, I have the original one, the, the, the first gen, I'm actually recording on it right now. Um, but the uh, I, I love it for, for Commodore 64 emulators. It's like the perfect little portable Commodore 64. Yeah, it works great for that. Uh, when you deal with uh, one USB port for input, um, you just get yourself a uh, one of those uh, multi-port hubs, and that works pretty well. Or you probably have the big old brick station that you can hook things into, don't you? No, I didn't do any of that. I didn't do the brick station. I didn't do any of the, any of the, I have a little USB port when, when the going gets rough, but most of the stuff I do is over Bluetooth. No, I haven't considered Bluetooth for some of the stuff. Anyway, we're, <laughs> we're going off on a tangent here. But yeah, I would like to try that emulator and uh, maybe before this gets posted, I'll take a look at it and um, put some opinions and thoughts about what I saw and hopefully how much fun I had using it. Well, I definitely have some opinions and thoughts, but they're not about the emulator. Well, what opinions and thoughts are, do you have about this? You want one, right? I do definitely want this. I actually wasn't being specific to the new brain. I have opinions and thoughts in general. That's what I meant. Just all of, of emulators. No, just everything. Okay. Grouchy old man. No, never mind. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Me more so than you. (laughs) Why I'm dealing with all this nasal stuff. If I sound different than the last Last time anybody heard me on a podcast here, this isn't my natural voice. It's, uh, yeah, it's a head full of something voice. Uh, anyway, so if you want one and you want to play with the real hardware, it's kind of difficult to find, yeah. isn't it? Yes. In fact, the only thing I found when I did a search, oh, what was it, a couple weeks ago, there was only one former auction that sold for 135 U.S. dollars in not work and non-working but in tech condition. It's an A version. It doesn't have the display built in, but it will still hook up to a composite monitor. Right. But there, we'll show it in some links. There's a some pages out there that can take you step by step on how somebody fixed theirs. So yep. I don't think 135 dollars is a bad price for something like this, especially since after looking at pictures of the inside, it looks rather easy to fix. If you can identify the problem parts, you know, not too much in the way of surface mount. Yeah, exactly. It's all through hole. Um, I also saw some interesting, uh, I'm going to link, uh, we'll talk a little bit later about the nightfall crew, but they had a really interesting repair write up that we're going to link to. And, uh, that repair write up, he actually used a, essentially a Z80 NOP generator to output a square wave that he could use to troubleshoot the, uh, his Grundy new brain. So very, uh, fascinating little repair story there. I agree. There wasn't a whole lot out there when it came to this thing on eBay or anything like that. Uh, interestingly, there is one available right now on eBay. 
it's ending 18 hours from now. So by the time this podcast publishes, um, it's going to be gone. It's currently located in, in the United Kingdom and, uh, it's selling for about around the same price. Actually, it's like in the neighborhood of 150 us. Uh, I did find references to one that sold for 185 us, uh, but that included the expansion module, one of the IO modules. Uh, also interestingly, there are some expansion modules that are selling on eBay right now. And that expansion module alone uh, just ended uh, with 20 bids at 230 pounds. So we're talking, what is that, like almost 300 US, something like that? Yeah, that's, uh, it's like the the machine itself isn't so popular as everything to hook up to it is. Yeah, I see that in a lot of the old school computing stuff. You know, the the machine itself might not be cost anything, you know, in the grand scheme of things, but getting the accessories, that one really rare cable or that one really rare, rare expansion module, you know, those, those are where you're going to spend your money. Cough, TI-99, cough. Yeah, exactly. I still don't have a peripheral expansion box, but I have like uh, probably nine TI-99s. Oh, we have to do another trade. Oh. I have two boxes. Interesting. Do you want some TI-99s? <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> I have to pull them down from the pile so I can store things. Yes. Uh, yeah, we'll figure something out. Yeah, I sold one. I had three of them, actually. Nice. I sold one at the VCF East a couple years ago. They're not small. But, hey, they're not small. That's why I don't want to sell it and ship it. So, yeah, we'll have to talk offline here. If you, maybe you have something. Maybe if you find a Grundy new brain, I'll swap it. <laughs> no, you're going to keep the new brain. I know you. You know, it's funny because the ones I've seen listed don't have the display. And to me, that would be a non-starter. Like, if I would get a Grundy New Brain, it would have to have the VFD display. And that's just because I'm a, I'm a VFD display nerd. And you don't want to be tethered to a cord to the TV. That's true, too. I, I, can't, be, I can't be tied down like that. Yeah, that's, uh, that's not fun. Let's see. We're trucking along pretty good here. So how is this first show doing? That's, what's your opinion on the first show? It's terrible. I would have turned it off about 20 minutes ago. Maybe that's what our listeners out there will do. But hey, if they're still with us, we can talk through some of the uh, citations in case they want to get deeper information about the Grundy New Brain. Uh, if this is something that you're fascinated by, if we've, uh, you know, rekindled some some old brain cells or something that have uh, made this interesting to you. Treating this from an academia standpoint. Yes. Which is fine. Where did we find some information? So I uh, very, very heavily dug through a couple of different websites. Um, I'd mentioned a couple of YouTube videos that I watched. Those were just so I could get some idea of what this machine was all about. Um, I'm going to link out to the YouTube channel of uh, Chris Garin or Garin. Uh, there's another guy, uh, Shantanu Senal, Senal, who uh, posted. Okay. Yeah. They both posted, um, you know, some great repair uh, information about the, uh, the Grundy do brain. They did some teardowns and they were kind of working on it. Um, I also found a, a, a group called premier computer systems that had some good videos about the, um, the new brain. I thought it was interesting. Their YouTube channel is actually called Dell Dimension 2345. But anyway, I won't hold that against them. Well, it makes people, it makes them come up on a search. Yeah, true. Uh, I also got a lot of info from oldcomputers.com um, about the hardware itself. Uh, we're going to link out to, uh, this might be one of yours. Uh, I don't think this was mine. Yeah, it's a article from the Popular Computing Weekly magazine, September 30, 1982, on page 12, it's called Return of the Prodigal Son. And it talks about, it, it's on archive.org. It's uh, the popular computing magazine is available on there. Great source of uh, material. I think it was Jason Scott's been putting that stuff up there. 
I think a vast majority of it, but I know he's crowdsourced a lot too. It all works. It's great to have these references, but it's an interesting read because the story talks about the new brain as it was, you know, just, I guess, where the public might first hear about it as opposed to people, you know, behind the scenes and in the know. Interesting. That that was pretty late too, 1982, in in the scope of the, the of the process of when this actually got released and everything. That that was pretty late. And Commodore 64 said yeah. to be a pretty popular computer in Europe, and the Sinclair. Never heard of it. And you mentioned the Nightfall page. Yeah. Um. One I wanted to point out that actually had a great write up. Uh, was actually the Rhode Island Computer Museum. Uh, there was there was a great little write up on there about the machine. And then Adrian Graham's Binary Dinosaurs website had an excellent, uh, what seemed to be like a firsthand, maybe primary source style write-up of the uh, Grundy New Brain and some thoughts about, I guess, from the inside, it seemed. Uh, I didn't dig enough in to figure out who who was actually talking. I probably should have at this point. But, um, you know, it, it, there was definitely some insider knowledge in this article. Um, and I did borrow relatively heavily from that from that link as well. Um, but yeah, night- I do when we can't find anything. Exactly. Nightfall crew did have a, a great write-up, as I mentioned, about the repair of one. Uh, but the most important part, I think, of their write-up, and as is typical with their website, uh, there was an excellent, uh, a couple of excellent pictures of the device as well. Yeah, he had uh, some pretty good close-up pictures, so you can see things, get an idea for yourself what made it tick. And I wonder if somebody could use those pictures to redesign it from scratch. Ooh, interesting. That sounds like a project. Well, we have those other systems that are being done with Arduinos or whatever. and The minis and the classics. Exactly. It's funny how many of those are based on like the same processor. It's a, it's an all winner, like a 10 or whatever it's called. Yep. And if you do things with FPGA, then you got CPU cores that do most of the work for you. You just got to tie things together. Exactly. Uh, the Rhode Island computer museum one, I, I, I'm here. I'm trying to figure out how to make the link go. I forgot how to do that. Yeah, if you just click on it, and then it'll be a little pop-up above. Oh, that's it. Okay. Yeah. Problem is, it's scrolling off my screen. Boy, do I sound like an old man who doesn't know a computer. Yeah. Well, I mean. There it is. There it is. You'd, you'd, be, you'd be great if it was the 1980s. Oh, yeah, perfect. Doing really well. Uh, and 19, well, 1982, when this came out, I had my VIC-20 for almost a year. I was probably still in my TI-99 at that point. I got a TI-99 at Christmas that year in, in 82 because... TI was selling them out, and JCPenney had them for 50 bucks. Nice. Yeah, I hadn't moved over to my Com- Commodore 64 yet at that point, so I was definitely still on the TI-99. Yeah, I, the TI-99 was one of those ones that, uh, gee, I can make the VIC-20 do so much more, yet it looks like the TI-99 could do things, but TI doesn't want you to touch it. <laughs> right. Yeah. has all this power, all this graphic stuff, same graphics that run the ColecoVision, but, gee, if the... Don't let the user touch it. It's funny, uh, this many years past that period of time, how much I have almost no nostalgia for the TI-99 whatsoever. It's it's crazy. Like, I, I love Commodore 64, have excellent nostalgia for it, did a whole ton of work on it. I used the TI-99 like crazy when I had it, don't get me wrong. But for whatever reason, I just I just have no love for it, and I don't know why. Because even to this day, you still need some special hardware to access the, the real working parts. Or you have to buy some sort of add-in, like um, they have a replacement video chip yeah. for it that gives with the VGA and gives you more colors and stuff. But then, It's called the F-18A. That's it. Yep. Yeah, it just sounds like an airplane or a uh, fighter. 
airplane. Uh, no, that's the FA-1880, <laughs> um, which you can play on the Commodore 64 and not the TI-99. There you go. But yeah, but see, that, that breaks compatibility. It's nice, but it breaks compatibility. It's a neat chip, though, in general. Uh, that chip, that F-18A, is, is a really cool project. And I, I'd read recently that there's apparently a 2.0 version of it coming out and actually heard uh, one of the, I think it was RCR podcast, they were just talking about it as well. Yeah, maybe I'll wait for 2.0. I, I should get one eventually. It's just not on the top of my list. I just have to make sure my TI-99 still work. So I know I know you're into arcade stuff too. Do you, do you have a baby Pac-Man? I do not. Okay, because it, it works in the baby Pac-Man as well. It's the same chip. No, my, my arcade stuff is a main cabinet and a uh, cocktail millipede. Ah, nice. With a very dim screen, and, and I have something to, uh, what do they call those, rejuvenators? I have a rejuvenator, mm-hmm. but I have to rewire it because the rejuvenator I had is older than the tube Ah, in the machine. Although I could hook it up and do it, um, I have to do that. I have to rewire it or come up with a new end, and um, it has interchangeable ends. But, yeah, yeah but nothing that uses the uh, FA-18 or F-18A. I guess the original chip was what the ninety nine or nine one nine nine or something like that that the F eighteen A replaces. I'm trying to remember, was it two nine? You said nine nine one nine. Yeah, I think it was TI uh, TMS nine nine one eight. Sorry, eight. Yeah. Oh, and there's the uh, okay. That's where the eighteen comes in the F eighteen A. That would do it. Yeah, interesting. It's a good way to remember it. But where the nine nine came from, I don't know. Don't know. <laughs> nine. Did you see the meme going around on Facebook? Uh, shows, I'm, I'm paraphrasing it here because I don't have time to look it up, but somebody said they found a book, it's a thousand and one ways of doing something with a computer, but he was upset that it only had nine pages. <laughs> oh, it's binary, okay. Oh, that's terrible. You get it now. I do get it now. Wow. That's why I didn't move it to my <sighs> I think on I think on that note, we, we should probably uh, sign off here. Maybe my medication is getting to me <laughs> or wearing off. I, I don't know. <laughs> hopefully I can shake this by the next episode whenever we can get our days together. That's been a real problem here. Yeah. I think it's mostly on my end. I, I blame me. No, I'm not blaming anybody. I've had problems too. So, <laughs> so we, we both had things that come up and things we forget about and we'll find, we'll find a perfect time. Well, as soon as we get that CBS all access license, you know, yeah. as soon as they license it, we'll be, we'll be made in the shade. We're we'll doing this all day long. What are you going to do with your ten bucks that come from it? You know, I'm looking at that new uh, that new surface. Ten bucks, all right. I'm sure there's one available, probably on Wish, right? <laughs> nice knock off one. What's that uh, deal? That auction? That? Uh, oh yeah, one of the shady ones where you got to buy your way to bidding or whatever. I bought, bought this for ten bucks, but yeah, but I had to buy three hundred dollars worth of tokens. <laughs> So I guess that uh, brings us to the end of this episode of whatever we're calling the podcast, The New History of Personal Computing. Does that make any sense? And we may have that figured out by next time. Yeah. You know, I, I like The New History of Personal Computing, too. That that also kind of has the same quality, to me anyway, as The History of Personal Computing Reboot. Yes. I, I think there's a funny wordplay there between new and history. I don't know. Yeah, I get it. I get it. It's like a, an oxymoron. Maybe we should just call it the uh, 1001 Pages of History Oh, there we go. Yeah, we'll figure out the number. <laughs> anyway. Well, thank you, Jeff, for podcasting with me. Oh, thank you. I can't believe my set actually worked. I'm, I got wires all over the place. Uh, but hey, it works. Hopefully my audio is good. Except for that 